You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We're going to move now into a time of hearing from God's Word. Uh, it has nothing to do with what's going on in the world. So some of you are like, great, I don't have to think about that anymore, and you're excited to think about something else for a minute, and some of you are like, man, I was really hoping to hear something about fear or something. Nope, talking about money today. So get ready for that conversation. Uh, we just prayed against fear, so you can't be afraid if that's something that does, you don't want to talk about, but that's good. As you know, uh, we do questions and answers at the end. Um, I imagine you have a lot of them. Please send any one you have. I'll do my best. If I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know. Uh, but there's the text for that. Um, I even have my own personal number on the last screen if you can't get through on that. Uh, but send questions. We're in the middle of a sermon series, and I say middle, I mean we have two more. This one and next week uh, called Ship Shape. Uh, ship shape. We're talking about the ships of our life to make sure that <clears throat> what's going on in our life, uh, we're, we're seaworthy, we're airtight, we have a good ship to navigate this sea of life. Uh, and so we are talking about these types of things like relationships, hardship, warship, leadership, things like that. Next week, we're going to end on relationships. It all revolves around this quote. So all the water in the ocean cannot sink uh, us Sink a ship unless it gets inside, nor can all the trouble in the world harm us unless it gets within us. So we're just making sure our, our vessel is seaworthy, thinking about things that we don't normally think about uh, through a biblical lens, through God's wisdom. Today we are talking about stewardship. Stewardship, how we manage our time, talents, resources, money. Because if we don't learn to control our time and money, they will control us. And it's a big part of our life. It's something that we think about. It's something that we're working towards. We all have lots of goals and directions, so we have to think about these things deeply. And God has a lot to say about them. I'm going to be quick about this for sure, but I wanted to give you some upfront uh, promises. First, I'm going to encourage you towards a life of generosity, radical generosity today. So there's going to be some hard things there. But my goal isn't to get you to give money to any church or even this church. And that's not my goal. In fact, so much so that we're not taking an offering today because I, because generosity is not about guilt and it's not about inspiration. And I can do that. And there's people that can do that even better than I do. Put some kids up here, maybe a puppy, like a third world country. And I could be like, guys, and you'd be like, uh, you feel it. There's put some music behind it. We can make that happen. But that's not what generosity is. Generosity is not necessarily about giving. It's bigger than that. And we're going to talk about generosity today. Not taking an offering. You don't have envelopes. Sorry, if you wanted that opportunity, you don't get it. Because for me, my goal isn't to get you to give to this church or any church. It's about your heart. It's about generosity. I got three pieces of bad news for you just to start off. The first one is, begins with a story. This is James Lackey. I don't know how old he is. Seven years old. Got the same pants on. Sweet pumped up kit. Standing in front of some 1980s Suzuki Samurai. My uncle's drinking wine out of a goblet. I don't know why he has a goblet. It's a goblet. That's my little brother and his sweet overalls and his mullet. Um, here's what this story is about. I, I would go with my grandparents every summer, and I'd live there. This is in the Santa Rosa area, and uh, they had way more money than my family did. Um, 
And my grandfather's brother lived next door and he was on hard times, lots of bills piling up. They didn't know how they were going to do stuff. But also this weekend, he was going on a fishing expedition, paid out in the ocean. It was a big deal. And my grandparents were kind of like, how is he able to afford that? This thing's going to cost him like 150 bucks. It was the early 90s. Things were probably cheaper than, I don't know. He's got all these bills. He's got things piling up and he's just going to go fishing for the weekend, right? Turns out he comes over about a week later and they hug him and it was pre-corona time. So there was a, a human touch was allowed and, um, you know, asked him about his trip and they were just so happy for him. And there was a lot of tension in that for me. And I said, well, I heard that thing cost you a lot of money and you can't even afford that right now. It probably cost you over a hundred dollars. And obviously it got real thick in the room, right? Everyone's hearts sank. And he played it off. He was good. But then my grandmother pulled me aside later and was like, so the things that we talk about behind people's backs, we don't want you to talk about those to their face, especially when it comes to money. And what little James learned was that most of us don't like to talk about money. It's a taboo topic for us. Don't bring it up very often. In fact, just this month, uh, Atlantic, the hard-hitting journalism of the Atlantic, put out why so many Americans don't like to talk about money. Opening paragraph says, Americans love to talk about how Americans hate to talk about money. Indeed, recent surveys for financial market research firms have found that 34% of cohabitating couples, married or not, one or both partners couldn't correctly identify how much money their partner made. We're not even talking to each other about this. You're sharing beds and you're not sharing your salaries, y'all. Well, I mean a third, a third of you. The rest of you are fine. 17% of parents with incomes over $100,000 do not plan on telling their children or have told their children. And people are more comfortable talking with friends about marital discord, mental health addiction, race, sex, and politics rather than money. We don't enjoy talking about this. We've been told in our culture we don't talk about it. It's not something that comes up. We're going to talk about it for 30 minutes today. So hold on. Bad news number two. Most of us think we're pretty generous, and we're probably not at least not in the definition of generosity that we're going to be talking about here soon. You are probably a wonderful giver. You are probably coming up to situations where people need something and you're willing to give. Somebody pulls at the heartstrings, that person down the street needs something, and, and you're willing to give, and you do. And you're awesome, and we love it, and, and that there's a time and a place for that. But when I'm talking about generosity, I'm talking about something different. We're likely good givers, but that isn't the same as generosity with our time or our money. Here's four myths of giving versus generosity. We think sometimes that generosity is spontaneous. It's not. That's giving. Generosity is not spontaneous. We'll get to that. We think generosity is determined by our cash flow, right? Like, oh, you hit me at the wrong time. If it was last week when I got paid, I'd be, I'd be more generous, but I, I can't. Things are tight right now. Generosity doesn't have to do anything with our cash flow. We'll get to that too. We think it's the amount that counts. It's not at all. I mean, Jesus is very clear about this. I don't even have time to get into this story today, but Jesus has his disciples watch this, this old woman give her last two pennies to God. And then he, they also see all these people loudly announcing the amounts, these huge amounts they're giving to the treasury at the temple. And Jesus is very clear that the woman gave far more than they did. It's not the amount that counts. But sometimes... We use this euphemism that when people have a lot of zeros at the end of their gift, uh, that we say something like they were very generous, and, and that's just not the case. It's not the zeros that, that amount to generosity. Lastly, the myth is that rich people are generous, 
and really, there's ultimately no uh, correlation between being rich and being generous. In fact, maybe a, even a negative correlation as far as percentage goes, that more people, more money people have, the less percentage they're usually willing to give. But ultimately, if you're, you're, you might be saying to yourself, when I have more, I will give more. And the reality is, is if we don't have generous hearts now, we likely won't have generous hearts then, and the opposite can be true. Here are the four P truths of generosity, because I'm a pastor. Everything has to be alliterative. alliterative. Is that the right word, Shelley? Nope. Uh, the first one is generous people have a plan. That's the first one. Generous people have a plan. This is planned in advance. They're not torn by guilt. They're not inspired. They, they already know. Generous people know the price or the percentage that they're going to give, both of those Ps. They already know in advance how much because they have a plan. So they know how much. Generous people have a place. They know where it's designated. They know who it's going to. They know where it's going to. Again, they're not torn by guilt or inspiration. They already have the plan in place and price figured out. And lastly, every person has the power to be generous. I know people who have very little that are generous. I know people who have a lot that are not. And, and, and everything in between, obviously. I know people who have a lot that are and people who have very little that aren't. Um, but one of the things growing up in this community, as someone who had less resources, uh, I knew a lot of generous people that didn't have anything, but they just lived their life in such a way that um, they were willing, they were willing to be generous with their time and their resources. There's just something about communities that don't have much that oftentimes are willing to share much of what they have. But I've also lived in homes that had a lot and also could be generous too. That's why we're talking about generosity, because it's not correlated to how much you have. It's correlated to a heart condition that we have. Bad news number three gets a little harder, so bear with me. Hold on, take a deep breath. Not having money won't get you to heaven, but our money can keep us from heaven. Being poor ain't going to get you to heaven, but our money can keep us from heaven. If we don't handle it well, it could be a major obstacle to what Jesus is doing in our life. Three verses. Here we go. Jesus, no one can serve two masters. You'll hate one or you'll love the other. You'll hate the other one or you'll love the other one. And he ends with, you can't serve God and wealth. The way you handle this, it can become a competing God if you don't handle it correctly. Number two, Jesus is telling the story about the generosity of God and how God just throws God's seed everywhere. The seed is the word his, his word of life, he just throws it everywhere indiscriminately to all people and places. And he says, uh, the heart is a, is a type of soil, he says. And there's a certain heart, there's a lot of weeds in it, thorns and thistles, chokes out God's word. And this is what he said, as far as the seed that was spread among the thorny plants, this refers to those who hear the word, but the worries of this life and the false appeal of wealth choke the word, and it bears no fruit. There's a way that wealth can lie to us and keep us from where God wants us to go. Lastly, Jesus says in multiple Gospels, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Now, also, I got to be clear this passage goes on, and the disciples say, who can be saved? And Jesus says with 
With God, all things are possible. And that's true. We believe with God, all things are possible. But Jesus also wants you to know that there's a way in which our money can keep us from heaven. And sometimes we tell this story, we try to explain it this way, about this camel and this gate and this needle. Here's how, what has come about over the last 50 years, is that there was a gate uh, in the temple called the eye of the needle because it was very small and camels couldn't get through if they were too loaded down. And so you had to unload your camel so that you could get through this gate of the temple. And that is a complete fabrication. That, that is not true. There's no archaeological evidence to support that. There's no biblical descriptions to support that. That is our way to try to soften the teaching of Jesus here. There's a, there's a time-tested uh, Middle Eastern uh, parable that's talking about literal sewing needles. Jesus is talking about literal sewing needles. Usually in the Middle East, when they're telling this, uh, this cliche, they're using elephants. Jesus goes easy on us and uses a camel, because I think I can get a camel through there a lot easier than an elephant, but who knows? At the end of the day, what Jesus wants us to know about this bad news is that how we handle our resources can be a detriment to our life in the kingdom in a huge way. Good news. There's a lot of good news in this, too. Jesus gives us lots of wisdom and advice on how to handle our resources. You know how I preach head, heart, hands? Something for us to know, something for us to experience and feel in our heart, and there's something for us to do. And so the first thing for me that I think Jesus wants us to know is that you can't buy your way into the kingdom. Uh, you go in through generosity. And this has a double meaning, so stick with me. You can't buy your way in, but you go in through generosity. Two verses. One, Jesus says... Don't judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven, Luke 6. Then he goes on to say, give, and it will be given to you. A good portion, packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing, will fall into your lap. The portion lap, the portion you, will, you give will determine the portion you receive in return. Jesus is setting up a kingdom law, a spiritual law that I think is wild, uh, scary, that God is going to relate to us how we relate to the people around us. How we judge is how God judges. How we condemn is how God condemns. How we forgive is how God forgives. Jesus even teaches us to pray. We've been praying it every week at the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Or you want to pray it the old way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of the people around us. Like, it's wild that God gives us so much power here to not only how we relate to others, but how we want God to relate to us. And then he says, how, much you, how generous you are will determine how generous God is to you. There's a spiritual law. Can't buy your way into the kingdom, but generosity lets us experience the kingdom's generosity in a powerful way. Second verse, <clears throat> Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights in giving you the kingdom. God is so generous with us. He gives us this huge thing called the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. Make for yourself wallets that don't wear out, a treasure in heaven that never runs out. Nothing on earth can destroy it. Where your treasure is, there your heart would be too. We could spend all day there. But your first question should be, did Pastor James just tell me to sell everything I have and give it to the poor? And the answer is absolutely not. Jesus did. He says it a couple times, take it up with him. What I want you to know, this is what I want you to know, this is what I want you to know, is that the king, there's a kingdom law going on. There's a spiritual law that Jesus puts into place. That how we give is how we will be given to. The generosity we have is the generosity we'll experience from God. 
that God has already been so generous with us and our generosity is to flow from God's generosity to us. Like a cup, there's a word <clears throat> in Greek called plethuno, um, and uh, there really is no, there was none of this Greek word outside of Christianity, but it was this, it's this word of fulfilled, filled to overflowing. This is really what God wants us to experience, this idea that God is filling this cup up, and, and we get to be generous by how much God is just spilling out around us. God has given us so much. He expects us to be generous too, as his children who look like him and have received so much. I think the other thing he's telling us is that all major gifts have responsibilities. We know this. I got my first dog. His name was Shadow. He was a Rottweiler, and I loved him. But also, he needed food. He needed care. He got sick. I had to feed him baby aspirin and Gatorade one time. We brought that dog back to life. But you know that, like, the best gifts also have responsibility. We also have a cat named Shadow who I did not want to get. And my <laughs> wife wanted to get the kids, this cat, a year and a half ago. And I was like, I don't, I, like, I'm okay with it, but I don't want to take care of it. And she was like, no, 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 I got it. And then I was scooped all the litter yesterday, and I cursed everyone in the house <laughs> in my head, though. And that's my cross to bear, you know, like, as I'm cleaning up this cat. That I didn't, I'm like, I don't really need more things. To, I have plenty of things to love. I don't need another thing to love. And she loves me the most, you know? And I'm like, I don't, I don't need you or want you. You know the, the best gifts we have have responsibility. I got my first car, 88 Toyota Camry. It was cherry. It was, uh, we called her Rose because that was the color she was. For me, it was freedom. My grandparents bought me this car. I had to pay them back, but it just felt like this huge gift. It was freedom. I got to see my girlfriend. I got to go out with my friends. I got to do all the things that I wanted to do. We kind of lived higher up in the hills, so I got to go into town. I wasn't locked up there. I lived with my grandparents. There was a lot of generational divide. Car was freedom, but it also was car payment and insurance and gas, and my grandfather made me wash it every week. You know, like responsibility. I mean, I could go on. The kingdom is an amazing gift that God gives us, generously overflowing our lives. It is joy. It is salvation. It is true life. And money can mess it up because it's a two-handed gift that requires a whole life change. Next point. What does God want us to experience with our heart? That generous people are happier people. That God has just designed the world and designed our bodies. That generosity is the way to human flourishing, is the way to our own thriving and happiness in life. I got a Bible verse. I got some studies. Let's go. Before I get to that verse, though, I got to tell you the story. Uh, it comes from St. Paul, who comes after Jesus. His mission was to tell people about Jesus who were non-Jewish people, Gentiles, in the Mediterranean world. And he set up all these churches he went around and set up all these churches. He wrote all the letters. Most of our New Testament is his letters to these churches. But in Acts 20, he's going back to Jerusalem. He is going to face the music. The Jews there have not been liking what he's been talking about. They've been following him around. They, they beat him. They, they, they whipped him. They threw stones at him. They tried to kill him. Finally, they called him back home to Jerusalem, and they are going to punish him, maybe even kill him. And so he's going to go home and face the music. But along the way, he visits his churches one more time. In Acts chapter 20, 
we get his farewell speech to this church at Ephesus. And there's crying, and there's weeping, and there's praying, and he's saying, I'm never going to see you again. And he says two things to them to end his speech. The first one, now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all whom God has made holy. That's the first part. He wants us to know about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that we are sinners saved by grace, not by our works so that any may boast, but freely God has offered his son as a ransom for many so that we may freely enter into the kingdom of God. It is grace. It is grace. The second message he says is, I haven't craved anyone's silver, gold, or clothing, and everything I have shown you that by working hard we must help the weak. In this way we remember the Lord Jesus' words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you've probably said that, and you've probably said it many times, and maybe some of you did or didn't know that it was from Jesus, but Paul's telling us, Jesus tells us this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And here's when I use it. I don't use it as a life of generosity. I use it when my kids are disappointed about their Christmas gifts and they see that their sister or brother got something better and you're like, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you don't mean it though. You're like kind of gritting and burying it a little bit, you know? You're like, no, but really though, I think it is. But like, I wish I would have got something better. And they're like, did I have to get so many socks? And then you're like, Dude, when you hit 25, socks is the best Christmas present you could get. You're like, yes. But for kids, it's a little bit harder. Jesus has something for us in this statement. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And now it's time for our favorite segment. Pastor James is a... That's true. And it's very simple. The word blessed, we say blessed. We say blessed if you want to be fancy. Um, Equals... The Greek word makarios. If you know somebody named Kari, it's from this word. Makarios means happy. That's it. Happy. That's it. So we try to church it up a little bit, and we use the word blessed, blessed, but in reality, it's the word happy. Jesus wants us to know that if we want to have a happy life, we live a life of generosity. That we live an others-focused, outward-giving life that is better and more blessed than a life that is seeking to receive all the time. Studies support this. This is coming out of <clears throat> Zurich, Switzerland. They get 50 people 100 bucks. They said half of you have to spend it on yourselves and half of you have to spend it on others. And then they measured their satisfaction levels afterwards. And everyone who spent it on others was happier than the people that spent it on themselves. And you're like, oh, it's $100. I wish I had $100. You know, that's what I, I, in my head, I'm thinking, I'll take that 100 bucks and spend it on myself. I'd be very happy to do so. But that's not what the science tells us. This is a huge study out of UC Berkeley. And the whole thing is about why generosity makes us happy. And they have their scientific answers. But as your pastor, I think it's because God created us and created a kingdom where generosity is the norm. Even in a world that is selfish and self-centered, and even when it's not natural for us, generosity leads to happiness. Makarios, blessedness, happiness, all three the same, has to do with, uh, with this uh, multifaceted human flourishing that's only found in Jesus' kingdom. It's a fuller life to be generous than to be looking to receive. Lastly, what does Jesus want us to do? 
What are we called to do through the Bible with this resource stewardship generosity thing? Here's what I want you to do. Make a plan and stick to it. Paul is collecting a big uh, collection of money because there's a famine in Jerusalem. Remember, he's going home to Jerusalem, but there's also a famine there, and he wants to bring some money there to, to bring relief to the churches. He thinks it'll be a great witness to the Jews around them when he sees the Christians from all over the world have shared their resources to bless these people in a hard time. And he gives some rules about what we should do in giving. It's a lot of great wisdom here. 1 Corinthians 9. I don't want you to feel like you are being forced to give. No guilt. What I mean is this. The one who sows small, uh, a, small, a small number of seeds will also reap a small crop. And the one who sows a generous amount of seeds will also reap a generous crop. So then he just gives a farming metaphor that's just like, duh. If you put a lot of seeds in the ground, you'll probably get more food, Right? But he's, he's tapping into that religious, spiritual kingdom law that we talked about earlier, that God is going to give to us in the same measure that we give to God. He says, but I don't want you to feel any guilt. You know how God operates. Then he goes on. Everyone should give whatever they have decided in their heart. Not what I have decided. Not what the world has told you. What you and Jesus have decided. Don't give out of hesitation or because of pressure. Again, no guilt or inspiration because God loves a cheerful giver. God has the power to provide you with more than enough of every kind of grace. That way, you'll have everything that you need always and in everything to provide, a more, to provide more than enough for every kind of good work. No guilt, no inspiration. Make a plan with Jesus. Stick to it. That's the way to begin having a generous heart. This is my man, John Wesley, best friend, died in 1791, love him dearly, the father of the Methodist movement, grew up in England. I mean, the man transformed the world. So many church movements spring from his leadership, like ours, like United Methodist Church, like the Wesleyans, like the, the Nazarene Church, most of the Pentecostals, Church of God, all that kind of stuff. All these come from his leadership. The man was brilliant. I appreciate it. He had this thing called the Wesleyan paradox. And I'll tell you what it is. He says, when we become Christians, we work hard and live simply. We stop doing the dumb stuff that we were doing with our money, throwing it away, gambling it away, spending it on all the stuff to try to fill that hole in our heart that only Jesus could fill. And so he says, we begin to work hard and we live simply. We begin to work hard and live simply. And you should work hard. You should be the best at your job. You should show up on time. You shouldn't cause any drama. You should, uh, you know, when you're there, do what you're supposed to do. That's what you signed up to do. And, and I tell you, you do all that, you'll get as promoted as high as you can get promoted. Like, that's basically it. Show up and be nice. Man, they're just begging for people to do that. And live simply, he says. That once you know Jesus, you start knowing the difference between wants and needs, and you can start prioritizing needs, and, and you need less wants there. And he says, this is the way. This is the way to get rich. Work hard and live simply. This is the way to get rich, he says. But as his 80 years in church leadership, what he saw was that people who did this did increase in wealth, but something else happened too. He says, it'll increase your money, but nine times out of 10, it'll decrease your faith. That's what he said. Those are his stats. 
that when you were broken, poor, and had only Jesus in your life, your faith somehow was just more richer than when you had the comforts that you needed, and somehow your faith diminished. Not everybody, but a lot. And the paradox, the, he cried out, I mean, tears, and he, and he screamed at Jesus, and his question boiled down to, does Christianity destroy itself? Does it, is it a system that helps people get their life right, get their life on their, get on their feet, head in the right direction, only for them to get comfortable and forget about Jesus in their life? Does it destroy itself? And he says, there's only one thing I can think of to do. Keep working hard. Keep living simply. But you have to give all you can. He says, if I have any spare money in my pocket, I get rid of it as quickly as I can, lest it finds its way to my heart, he says. And he did exactly this. Worked hard, lived simply, gave all he can. I mean, I could tell you stories upon stories about how he started an orphanage and he didn't have enough money to have meat and potatoes. They called everything potatoes. I was like, meat and potatoes sounds delicious, but it was carrots and stuff. And so for two years, he just, he's like, I'll take my meat budget and I'll give it to the orphanage and I'll just be a vegetarian for two years. That's, I mean, lived simply. And then he's like, I'm just going to eat at the orphanage now. I started it. I'll eat there and just give all my money, all my food. Like he did some incredible stuff. But really, I mean, I'm going to give you this quote. I'm going to tell you what he did. I'm going to encourage you to do something similar and then we'll be done. Here's this quote. It's a harsh one. Do you gain all you can? Do you work hard? And you save all you can. He doesn't mean save like savings account. He means like um, don't spend stuff on frivolously. If you can buy some knockoff stuff, like do that too. If you don't need it, don't need it. Let your stuff last longer than it, than it should. Uh, do you gain all you can? Good. Do you save all you can? Then, then you must and by nature grow rich. If you have any desire to escape the damnation of hell, give all you can. Otherwise, I can have no more hope of your salvation than that of Judas Iscariot. It's called, uh, it's from the causes of the inefficacy of Christianity. So what did he do? Here's what he did. He made a budget of the things that he need, and then he gave everything away, everything else. And I'm not even telling you to be that radical. That feels pretty radical, but he really did. He said, I need 30 pounds at the time. He needed 30 British pounds to live yearly. He ended up at the end of his life making 150, 200 pounds, and he'd just give, you know, the 170 pounds away. And he did that till the day he died, died with nothing. But what ultimately what I think we could take away from this is we should, generosity demands of us that we make a plan and we stick to it. Make your budget, figure out what you can give away. Don't be pulled by your heartstrings into giving, but figure out what Jesus is asking you to do and do it. That's your spiritual practice this week. Make your plan, find your price, figure out your place. Budget, how much, where. Pretty simple. Uh, I'm not asking you to do what he did where he's giving away everything. Uh, start with something small. Start with something small. Maybe it's 1%. Maybe it's $100. I know somebody who says, my lifetime goal is to give away a million dollars. That's not my lifetime goal. That's his lifetime goal. I know some people are like, I can do 1%. Some people are like, I can do $20 a month. Whatever it is, figure out what it is and then stick to it. And this will increase our generosity over time. Amen. Got some questions. Then we'll sum this up, move into communion, and we'll be on our way. I got a lot of questions today, and I'm a little nervous, so <laughs> feel free to send me mean stuff, too. I get it. Where does the word tithe come from? Is that our goal? Tithe comes from the word, it's tenth. It means a tenth. It comes from the Old Testament. 
There are two stories where somebody gave away a tenth of their stuff. That kind of became the Jewish uh, rule to try to give away 10%. Jesus does not tell us to give away 10%. And I think it's because Jesus is actually asking us to give away more. I think Jesus is trying to get to the heart of generosity more than a number that we can check off and call ourselves holy. And so Jesus is more worried about your heart than the amount. And so, um, so some people still do try to do a tenth, and that's a great goal. Uh, John Wesley, he's famous for saying, uh, Jesus didn't give us a number, but I think you should aim for 20%. And I'm like, if Jesus didn't give us a number, don't be giving nobody numbers, Mr. Wesley, but he did anyways. Uh, maybe it's 1%. Maybe it's 2%. Like I said, there's no number here. This is between you and God. Don't feel coerced, Paul tells us. God loves a cheerful giver. If it's an issue, uh, you got more praying to do before the, the, than you do have giving to do. No one here is trying to coerce anybody. Please don't feel but that's where the word tithe comes from. It comes from the word tenth. It's a Jewish practice. Some Christians still find it to be a helpful uh, number. Yeah? Uh, do you think generosity comes out of our behavior or our heart or our personality? How does someone become more generous? Great question. It's not your will. You can't will yourself to be generous. That's, um, that's not leaning on God to change our hearts. It's not your mind. It's not your emotions. And I could play on all those things, right? But at the end of the day, this is a Holy Spirit thing. But we believe. Don't sit around and wait for your heart to change. Begin the practice and ask the Holy Spirit to be in it. And it's a, and it's a, it's a two-way street where your heart will change as you mature. And as you practice the practice, the Holy Spirit will use it to make you more generous. But at the end of the day, again, Jesus is, is more worried about our heart than our pocketbook and our amount. Yeah? couple more. My praise team is like, hurry up. Uh, What if we don't know how to budget or where to start making a budget? Are there apps or resources or other things uh, or other people with more experience that could help in this area? I feel like the person probably answered their own question, but the answer is yes. There is a ton of resources. The bad news is that this is not my area of expertise. I am not helpful here. Um, so don't ask me. Um, I, I can help you with generosity. Uh, I'm not a financial manager. I think I probably said this earlier, but I'll say it again here. I don't know who gives what at church. I don't look at numbers. I do that f- for spiritual reasons. I also do that just because it's not my area of giftedness. But I don't need to know who's giving what to who. That's between you and God, as we said. This is something that I'm asking you to talk to Jesus about. So um, so I'm not the guy, but if you need help budgeting, there are so many people in this church who are generous and good with their finances. And if you want help or coaching or direction, uh, write on the blue card and I'll get you connected with someone who I think is incredible. There's multiple people. And so I'm sure one of them will be willing to come in and help you out. They probably won't do your taxes for you, but they could help you with the yearly budget. Last one, and then I'll sum this up. By the way, that's my direct line phone number if the church phone number doesn't work. Stewardship uh, typically implies responsibility with return, but that's not necessarily complying with generosity. What do we do with that tension? You're right. Stewardship was my word to fit the sermon series on ship shape. 
I'm not talking about stewardship at all. I'm talking about generosity. Stewardship is how to manage your resources. Generosity is about how much God wants you to give away. And so um, don't crucify me, but I'm not talking about stewardship. I'm talking about generosity. Thanks for calling me out. I appreciate that. You are correct. The goal is a life of generosity, leaning into abundant grace of God and modeling that with our resources. It comes from a life that is not rooted in fear or scarcity, inspiration or guilt, but the generous grace of God manifested tangibly in our own giving to other people. And whether you give here or somewhere else, Jesus is working in our non-anxious, working in us a non-anxious, non-fearful way of living generously in the kingdom. Last word is, I know the church by and large, has messed this up for a lot of people. If it's weird for you to give to church, I'm telling you, don't. Give somewhere else. It is more important. Generosity is so important to our spiritual health that if you can't give to a church in good conscience, find somewhere else to give. Don't use it as an excuse not to give if the church has not uh, earned your trust. And again, my goal isn't to make you give here. If you need to give somewhere else to practice generosity in a way to build trust in this situation, I want you to experience the blessing of God more than uh, figuring out how to give your resources away well to whatever organization you think needs to get them. You, I think generosity is just more important than who gets what. There are lots of great organizations in our community. I work with a lot of them, like Hope Center and Rescue Mission and the Axiom. We have the leader of the Axiom in our own congregation there's places to give. If it's not here, it can be somewhere else. Uh, we have organizational needs too. Uh, I pray that you would consider that. But if it's weird, don't let it be weird. Giving is more important uh, for your soul than it is for the organization receiving your funds. So please practice generosity even if it's not here. Hear me? With our head, Jesus wants us to generosity is the spiritual law of the kingdom. That the amount we give is the amount that we receive, and we have received so much that we should be willing to give much. With our heart, Jesus wants us to know that generous people are happier or more blessed than people who look to be receiving all the time. And lastly, with our hands, in the face of fear and scarcity and guilt or inspiration, Jesus wants us to make a plan with him and stick to it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for this topic. It is hard. It is something we don't like to do. Uh, but we pray that you use it, that you use these stories and these scriptures and this word to begin to help us think about what's going on in our lives, to letting money not control what is happening, but that we can be in control and ultimately reflect with our own resources that you are in control and that you've set up the world to run a certain way. First and foremost, Lord, we want to experience you, your joy, your providence, the way that you provide for us. We want it to be undeniable that you are in our lives and that our cups would fill to overflowing and generosity would be easy because we so easily recognize the generosity that you've given us, whether that's with time, whether that's with our own talents and gifts and abilities, whether that's with our finances and money, we just want to see you more clearly. And Lord, we pray that you would help soften our hearts, that you would help give us wisdom, that you help us find a plan and a place or a people and an amount that you want us to give, that we would not be 
tossed back and forth by the guilt or the inspiration, but that we'd be intentional with the resources that you've given us. And Lord, I think deeply we all want to be generous. So would you use that in us to draw, that, draw us closer to you and to help us, not only individually but collectively as a church, to be wildly, radically generous, that we would be known for it far and wide, that our community, our neighbors would know, would know that we belong to you, that you are a generous God, and that is reflected in our lives.